and everything alert? That's good. It's good. We're starting a new series today. If you have your Bibles, if you could open them to Psalm 119, I appreciate that, Psalm 119. Uh, if you don't have an, a bulletin, there's one right out there, center doors there, so you can follow along with the message. The message outline is on, on, on one side of the bulletin. Heard some time ago uh, a, a story about a book collector who had this little bookshop, and he was sharing with a friend, he says, I, I had an old book that, that I think's the Bible. And he goes, he said it was old, it was in a box, it was all dusty and everything. And in front of it said, in front of it said something like, published by Guten or, or something like that. But I threw it out, I threw it out. And his friend said, you threw it out, was it Gutenberg? Oh yeah, yeah, that's what it was, it was Gutenberg. He says, hey, did you realize, the, he said, the friend says, one just sold at an auction for over $500,000. He says, that could have been one of the first books ever been printed, printed the Bible. The man goes, oh, this one wasn't worth that much because there was all kind of handwriting in the margins and all kind of scribbling and notes by a guy named Martin Luther. We know that this Bible's valuable, don't we? We know that, right? We know, we know it's valuable. And we, we've experienced a life-changing part that God has given us from this book, right? We know how it changes our lives and impacts our lives. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this book, the Bible, God's book, through Psalm 119. And I want to really encourage you to be here, to go through this as we go through it together. The Bible was written by 40 different human authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And the Bible tells us it was all delivered and developed, and, and people were moved along by the Spirit of the living God. So this book is different from any other book, right? It's different. It's not the same as any other book. This book has the internal evidence we have, internal evidence, and it backs it up. All these authors are in in a concert, they're in alignment, they're all in agreement. You have external evidence as well that supports the same thing, that it's true. The external evidence is anything from Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who wrote and corroborated all the stuff that we find in the Gospels. You find also find archaeology. The archaeologists in their discoveries will find things that support what the Bible's already talked about. We find that all the time. And one more recent one that we had was in either 1993 or 94, we're in Dan or Tel Dan, uh, which is the northern part of Israel. Dan was located, the travel area near Joshua, along the Mediterranean Sea there. Uh, they couldn't conquer the land, or they really didn't try to conquer the land, but they found this land up there and they relocated. It was, goes way, way back. But in 1993 or, or, or 94, they were, they were kind of doing excavations there, and they found these three stones that were discovered there. And these stones had an inscription on them that referenced David. This is the first time that David has ever been referenced. They were found a reference of David outside of the scriptures. Because people always said, oh, you say David exists. But we haven't found any proof of that. And now they found this. So this was a really, really big deal. But that reference to David, David lived about 1,000 years before Christ. That inscription would date back to about 850 to 900 years before Jesus came to this earth. So it was a wonderful discovery, wonderful discovery. And similar to Dead Sea Scrolls, Josh McDowell once said this, he says, that every time an archaeologist's shovel goes into the ground, a theological liberal dies because new evidence is found supporting what the Bible's already talked about. And it's so true, so true. Archaeology proves that the Bible is, is, is right, right? The truth of the Bible. In Psalm 119, this is a beautiful psalm written in Hebrew, and the first thing I want to point out to you is that the Hebrew Bible is different from our Bible. Uh, when we open up a, our Bible, we start from the front, right? The Hebrew Bible starts from the back. 
So the first book that they're going to have in their Bible from the back is going to be Genesis. We read from left to right, right? Hebrew Bible, they read from right to left. They go the opposite direction. It seems like everything's the opposite. But what makes Psalm 119 so special is the 176 verses that are part of this. It's the longest uh, chapter in all the Bible, divided up into 22 sections, eight verses each in those sections. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet that we have. So what the author is doing, they wrote those eight sections that we find, and I mean those, those sections, those 22 sections, eight verses each, and all start with a Hebrew a letter of the alphabet. And the first section, those first eight verses, starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And all the verses of those eight verses will start with that same first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then when you get to the next section, verses 9 through 16, it'll start with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beit. All the verses in that section will be started with that letter. And so forth and so on until you get to all 22 sections of the Hebrew alphabet. And you ask, why is this so important to us? I wanted to point that out to you this morning to help you understand that the Bible isn't just thrown together. We think it's just thrown together. It just happened. It isn't. That there's just some guy in half a trance writing down what he really doesn't understand. It's not like that at all. Don't think of that. Put that out of your mind. These people were very meticulous, using their skill, their background, their knowledge, and moved along by the Holy Spirit to give you and I this incredible book. The only book written by God, right? The only book. This incredible book. In this chapter, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. And it's acrostic uh, for two purposes. The first was to memorize. It's easy to memorize. Uh, you, some of you remember when you were in school and you took those tests, and some of you are still taking tests today. And you had to memorize that long list of things. Remember that? We had to live, memorize that long list. And maybe you made up a kind of a weird sentence to help you memorize that long list. Anybody ever do that? You did that? And you had to memorize things that you only had to know for that test or that exam that you never wouldn't have to know outside of that, right? But you had to memorize those things. And that's kind of what they did here. The reason they would use acrostic helped them to memorize for memorization. The second reason they would use acrostic, it was to send a message of completeness or thoroughness. This is everything you need to know about the Bible from A to Z. Everything you need to know, all the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, all of them is what he's saying here. Everything you need to know about the Bible is right here. Psalm 119 is what he's saying. And, and so uh, in all those 176 verses, all but four of those verses will talk about God, his decrees, his statutes, his commandments, his testimonies. It's all, about, it's all about the Bible and all those verses except four. What I love about Psalm 119 what I love about this book, it's just not talking about the book that's not connected to life or talking about the past or something like that. He's dealing with this book and the value of this book and how in our own present realities, and the things that you and I are going through today, he's dealing with it. It's very relevant. This book is God's word. We don't worship this book, but we worship the one who wrote this book, amen? We worship God. But this book is inspired, the Bible says, without error in the original manuscripts. And this book has been given to us to shape an awful lot of people, right? It shaped you and me. God has shaped us by his word, and he's continued to shape us and molded us by the word of God. And I don't know how many times in my own life that uh, I, I needed to make a, a, a decision or something, and God has directed me and guided me into the word of God, reminded me of a verse to guide me and lead me to make the right decision in my life. Because it's living, right? It's living. The Bible is living. It, it, it says in, it, remember in Hebrews 4.12, it says this, for the Word of God is living and active 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Living not in the sense that it's always changing. That's not what it's talking about. Living in the sense that it never changes. That it's timeless. That this is the most relevant book that's ever written, ever. There's no book like it. No book even compared. Because there's only one book written by God, right? This one right here. This book is written by God. Uh, and, and as you're reading this, God will show you through your study, through your understanding, the meaning of a word or the meaning of a passage of Scripture you're studying. Most of the meanings and interpretations are pretty easy, right, that we go through. Most is pretty easy to understand. But some take some study to understand it, right? I believe there's only one interpretation for every passage of Scripture, but there's thousands of application for that passage, right? Could be so many. Could affect every one of you differently is what it does. And God will take that principle many times, and he applies it to his life. The only way that God can do, right, that God does that. And it's amazing to see that. Over the years of preaching, I've been amazed that I might share a message, and somebody might come to me weeks or months later and say, you know, that what you said way back there, and it might mention a date or a month or something, you said this, and it really affected me. It really changed my life. And to be honest with you, a lot of times I don't remember saying it. I have no idea what Did I say that? I actually said that? And, yeah, you said that. Okay. That's all God. God did that. God does those kind of things. And through the Holy Spirit, he took that principle, and he applied it to that person's life in terms perhaps of their own habit that needed to change or a habit that needed to start started or something like that. Or maybe over here for a grieving person, God ministers to them. The same passage of Scripture God will use. And God will use that one interpretation for multiple applications, right? That's what God does. And as I'm sharing things this morning, some of you are listening and it's affecting you this way. God's applying it this way. And some is applying it another way and others another way. That's what God does. It's amazing what the Word of God does because it's living, it's alive. And it affects us, right? The question he's asking in verse 9 is we're going to get through verse 9 today, start there. It's a question from 3,000 years ago. Can anything be more relevant than asking the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can they do that? In today's world, with all the temptations, with the internet, with the pornography on there, and all the issues of life, and all the encouragement of our society, that's telling you and I, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. It's all right. You do what you want to do because it's all right. This Bible is living. It's alive, the Bible says. It's a life-changing book, and it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that way. It's God's Word, and it gives encouragement. It gives hope. It gives nourishment. It gives direction. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that the Word of God is inspired by God, that it is God-breathed, and it is, therefore it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? So how does a young man keep his way pure? How does an old man keep his way pure? How does a young woman keep their way pure? How does a middle-aged woman keep their way pure? How does an a, a, a older woman keep their way pure? He answers the question by guiding, the, by guarding their hearts, your ways, and living according to God's word is what he's saying here to us. That means we have to approach this as an active, in an active way, right? Passive, passivity will not work. Being passive with this word of God will not work. We have to be active, giving our wholehearted attention to this book is what we have to do. Give everything that we have. In these few verses, I want to share with you what I believe is really, really important. Kind of the, we're going to lean into the second passage, the second kind of part of this, this 
passage of Psalm 119. We're not going to go through the first eight verses. We're going to start verses 9 through 16 this morning. And we're going to learn staying pure means guarding our lives uh, with God's Word. And if you have your outlines ready, three ways to live a life of pure life. And the first one is approach God's Word wholeheartedly. I kind of gave it to you in a little bit ago. Uh, approach God's Word wholeheartedly. I'm going to be reading verses 9, 10, and 11. Verses 9 and 11 are a memory verse for the week, right? We're going to memorize this. Very familiar passage. Very familiar passage. So let's begin reading. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All my heart or wholeheartedly means both attitude and also commitment. Oftentimes, when the Bible uses the word hearted, it's referring to the mind, the reason, the emotion, the, the being. It's all that, that is in us that is immaterial. It's who I am is what the Bible's saying. C.S. Lewis once said, we're not bodies with the soul. We're souls with the body, right? This body is not who I am. This soul who's on the inside, that's who I am. It's all who we are. It's right here is what he's saying. So what he's saying here, he says, with all that you have, go after this and seek the Lord. With everything that you have, Go after this and seek the Lord. The psalmist talks about this a lot. We find in the Psalms. When I seek you, I find you that your loving kindness is better than life itself. He also says, as a deer pants after water, so my soul pants after you, O Lord. To seek God through his word wholeheartedly is what he's telling us to do. That we seek him with everything that we have. That takes activity. We can't be passive in doing that. We can't sit back and say it's going to happen by itself. It takes activity to do that. We have to be involved with that, right, to make that happen. Wholehearted devotion. Notice in verse 11, he says, I have hidden your word. Notice the word hidden. The English Standard Version translates that I have stored up. Stored up or treasured is a better rendering of that Hebrew word. It goes way beyond hiding it in your heart is what he's saying here. He's saying, it's, it's storing up or treasuring it in my heart. That is so highly valued. I highly value the Word of God so much we wholeheartedly seek it so God's Word can get in my heart because that's where we want it, right? I wholeheartedly value this, that I wholeheartedly seek it because I want to get it here in my heart. It does no good to be just here in this book. It has to be in my heart. It does no good just to be on that, that uh, smartphone that you have there, that gadget that you may be using. It has to be here in our heart. Some people around the world can't read their Bibles in public. If they read their Bibles in public, it comes at great risk. In contrast, we have it so easy in our country, don't we? Uh, the Bible's so accessible. But accessibility to the Scriptures are light years away from storing it up in our hearts. Just because we have accessibility doesn't mean it's here. And maybe you ask the question, why in the world uh, where we don't have that pressure do I need to meditate on God's Word? That I need to memorize God's Word? Because it's, it's just, uh, I, I have so much easy access to the Word of God. That if I'm in the line at McDonald's and a drive through in the line, I can take out my smartphone and I can tap that Bible app and one or two taps from there. I can be to any passage of Scripture I want to be at, right? Any passage is there. It's available to me. So why do I need to meditate or memorize the Word of God when I have such great access? And the reason is because I, I think there's so much value in placing God's Word in our hearts. To get it from this gadget and from this Bible into my hearts, that's what's going to change us. That's what's going to affect us. It does me no good to have it here or here if it doesn't get here, right? That's what we need is in our hearts. And I'm told the technology of this smartphone that I have here, the computer power of this 
phone is greater than the computers that powered the Apollo mission. You ever hear that? This little phone is greater than the computer power that the, the Apollo missions. And it's got so much power. And I'm using very little of its power. And, and I'm, I'm trying to learn, they tell me, what this phone can do for my life of, of getting information is readily accessible to me just, just with this phone. I can communicate really quick and all these kind of things. And I'm just learning it. But the moment I bought this phone, it's already outdated, right? It's an outdated phone. But I'm learning from it. I'm learning from it. There's so much here in the Bible, in this book that I haven't tapped. And I've been reading this for years. There's so much I haven't tapped. And there's so many people in this world that are so, so, so smarter than I am. I can't emphasize that enough. And they've been studying this all, their, all of their life, and they haven't reached bottom. They haven't even come close. They just scratched the surface, and they've studied it all their lives. We have to go after this book wholeheartedly. We have to give it everything that we have. Are you with me? You follow me? We have to be people of this book. We have to be people of this book. We intend to be what God wants us to be. Whenever we illustrate, we, we, when we kind of illustrate a wholehearted attention or devotion, we usually kind of think of athletes, at least I do, an athlete, and they go after it, and they excel. And I remember hearing uh, Tom Brady in an interview many, many years ago, and he, he said this, he says, if you're going to compete against me, you better give it up because I have. I've given up everything so I can win the game. We know that from Tom Brady, right? We know that. And we see what's happened to his life. He's given up everything so he can win that football game. I remember watching Michael Jordan. How many of you used to watch Michael Jordan? I mean, you see the tapes and stuff. I remember watching Michael Jordan. I used to love watching him play basketball. To me, there's no one like him. But outside the three-point line, he kind of fakes that shot. He'd go up and fake the shot. And then he goes around his opponent and charges toward that basket. And he's given everything that he has and everything he's trained for and everything he's eaten or everything he's not eaten is trained for that moment, right, to go to the basket. And if you're a, 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 an opponent on the other side wearing a different uniform and Michael Jordan is going around, you're going to try to stop him, sort of. He goes around you, and I don't know if you remember, he had that tongue. He'd get the tongue out of his mouth. and got to bite that tongue. And he goes around with you with those long strides, get that lift out of his legs, and goes up and he dunks the ball. Remember seeing that? I mean, you remember that? It was wholehearted devotion. This guy was trained. He was like a machine. Wholehearted devotion to win the game, no matter what it took, no matter what physical ailments he might have, he did it. And I watched him week after week in those games, year after year, in those championships, those MVP, all those kind of things. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Whatever a basketball player will, will gain from playing that game, maybe it's a divisional title, maybe it's an NBA title, maybe it's an MVP trophy, whatever it may be. In five or ten years from now, you don't remember who won the NBA title. You don't remember who was the MVP of that year. So those trophies that they gain are, are in that trophy case, just collecting dust, right? But our wholehearted commitment to this book has longer impact, much l longer impact, and it's an eternal impact is what the Bible says. It's eternal. And, and it's going to take us to be wholehearted committed to this book. That's what it's going to take us to do, to be what God wants us to be. I, I wish I had the words to communicate how it's important for you and I uh, to be people of this book. We need to be in, in this book all the time. You cannot be who God wants you to be as a Christian and not be in this book. You have to be in this book. You can't say that, you know, I'm a believer in Christ and I'm really walking right with the Lord 
but you're not reading God's word. You're fooling yourself. You're not. You're not. You're not walking right with the Lord if you're not in this book. We have to be in here. If we're not in this book, we're starving ourselves spiritually. And you wouldn't go in your physical body and say, hey, you know what I decided? I'm not going to eat for the next several days or maybe a few weeks. If you did that, what would your body be? You'd be very weak physically, wouldn't you? But many times we think we can do that spiritually by not getting in God's Word. Because this is our spiritual food. This is our conversation with God. We cannot go without this if we're going to walk and be who God wants us to be. We need this book. And so many times we're starving ourselves spiritually. And we wonder why, are, why is God seems so far away? Why doesn't things seem right in my life? Because we've gotten away from this book. We need to get in this book. I can't express it enough. We need to be people of this book. We need to focus on that this, uh, this year to be people of the book and, and create that kind of habit in our lives that I get into God's Word and I read it and have that devotion each and every day. So first, we need wholehearted devotion, right? Amen? You with me? Wholehearted devotion. The second way to live a pure life is align yourselves with God in His Word. Align yourself with God in His Word. Let's read verses 12 through 16. He says, Praise to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate in your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. What are you saying? He's starting out by, by saying, praise be you to, praise be to you, God. Worship. He's acknowledging the greatness of God right here. Then he says, teach me your decrees. What we see here, worship and learning go together. We are worshiping a God who we want to teach us. We're asking him, God pleading, God teach us. And yet teach us your decrees. It's not a prayer request as much as it's admission of submission is what he's doing. I'm submitting to you, God, right now. Right now. And you're the teacher. I'm the student. Teach me your decrees. Teach me your ways. They're so vitally important in my life. Jesus said there are two roads. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. As a narrow road that leads to life everlasting. Before Jesus said there was two roads, God the Father talked about two roads through the Holy Spirit. And he says there's two ways. There's the human ways that people take, uh, the world's ways, the ways of the old nature. Or we say there's a way that seems right to man, but the end it leads to destruction. And, and so there's this road, and, and this road that we take that they were all inclined to take. That's the road we're all inclined to take. That's the road that the world, the culture is encouraging us to take. Take that road. That's the road you need to go on, uh, to go on that road, to find your own way and all this thing. But that road doesn't lead to God. That road, in terms of being right with God, doesn't lead us there. That road doesn't lead us into right relationship with God. That road that we take on ourselves, that we do what is right in our own eyes, it doesn't lead us into right direction with God, a right relationship with Him. God said there's another road that's marked by wisdom. And the wisdom that comes from the Word of God. He says that road leads us in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That road leads us in a right direction with God. So the question is, which road are you going to take? The way of wisdom or the way of the foolish? He's saying here in verse 12, Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your ways. Let the Word of God shape us, is what he's saying. The second thing he says, we need to align our lips with his heart. And verse 13, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Our words reveal who we are, don't they? And oftentimes, once in a while, you hear a Hollywood actor or actress or, or a politician say something 
and they didn't know when Mike was on. They didn't know somebody else was listening. And they say something, uh, a word or to a group of people or say something they should not have said. And oftentimes they would go back and say, you understand this wasn't me. I didn't say this. Or I was taken out of context or something like that. But you need to understand this wasn't me. The Bible says more often than not that that was you. Because it says, because out of the heart flows the issues of life, right? Out of the heart comes from the mouth. So our mouth and words are revealed what's inside of our heart. We can try to hide it from everyone else, but what comes out of our mouth is what's really in our heart. And the psalmist here is saying, and I love this, he's saying this, and I want you to get this. Lord, I want my words to come from my heart. But Lord, I want you, through your word, to shape my heart. So when people listen to me, they hear the words and ways of God. Lord, help me to be that way. Help me to do that in my life. Then they might hear the ways and the words of God. So today, for all of us, uh, so when people hear us, the content of what we say and, and how we say it, may it be the words of the wise, that it be God's words flowing from our mouth, that we've been shaped by God's words. That's what we need to have. And, and not the way of the foolish. Let's not use the way of the foolish. Uh, we, we've all done that, haven't we? All of us here could probably write a book on the way of the foolish. Let's be honest with ourselves. The way of the foolish is doing what you want to do apart from God. We've all done that. I've done that many times. I could write a book, tell you how many times I've done that, and that leads to dead-end streets and hurts and all kinds of things. But the way of the wise, he's saying, is so, so much better because the word, but those words have to shape our hearts. They were speaking the words of the wise. Because God's word has shaped our hearts and our minds. That's what he's talking about. Finally, he says in this section, in verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Rejoice more than riches. The writer of Proverbs 2 talked about that. He says, we need to seek the wisdom of God as we seek for silver or, or gold. The word of God is so much more valuable than all that. So much more valuable than money and riches and anything else you can have in this world. So we need to wholeheartedly graft to this book, the Bible, we need to align our lives with God and his word, right? Number three, the third way to live a pure life is use God's word in everyday life is what he's saying. Use it in everyday life. In verse 15 and 16, he gives us four ways to do that. He gives us four ways. Verse 15, he says, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. Meditate means we, we think about it. We talked about that last week. We, we meditate on it. And there's real value in reading your Bible through in a year, right? So many of you do that, and I, I did it this past year. There's great value in doing that, reading your Bible through, where you had a kind of a quick pace as we're reading the Bible. But when it comes to meditation, though, it's hard to do that when we're reading the Bible through in a year because we don't have time to stop at a passage of Scripture and really think about it because we've got to get through it so quickly, right? If we don't, we're never going to finish the Bible. So I would encourage you, read through your Bible in a year. And I do that every three years or so, I like to do that to make sure the stories stay refreshed in my mind, but I don't do that every year because we need to meditate. We need to spend the time and don't feel like I'm rushed. And I gotta get through this passage. Gotta gotta read two or three more chapters so I make sure I get through it in the year. So we need to meditate. Meditate means I park alongside a verse and I just start reviewing it. I start thinking about it. And I start thinking about it throughout the day and meditate on it. And I allow the Word of the Holy Spirit of God to kind of bring it up to my mind and use it to kind of shape me and, and form me and apply it to my life. And, and that's what we need to do, to meditate on God's Word. Memorize it. Help to go through it in our minds and our hearts and, and apply it to our, our, our lives. 
Then he says in verse 15, he says, and consider your ways. The English Standard Version says, fix your eyes on your ways. Fix your eyes on your ways. And I like that. We are seeing a lot of car accidents happen today because people have this out, and they're texting, and they're, they're answering their phone. And as they're doing that, maybe trying to type, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, but they're trying to type there, and they're trying to drive. And all of a sudden, the traffic stops in front of them real quick, and they end up not realizing, and they hit the car that's in front of them, right? They hit the car. I mean, you've seen it happen, right? You, when you drive by a car and you see a little fender bender, what do you sometimes say? I bet they were texting or something. Or you see people in their car, not even looking up, and they're looking down. You know what they're looking at. They're looking at their phones, texting or answering their phone or doing something with it. How does that happen? When we don't fix our gaze, we get distracted, and bad things happen. When we don't fix our gaze, we get distracted, and when we get distracted, bad things happen. May I encourage you to fix our gaze on God, His Word, and His ways. Let me say that again. That we might fix our gaze on God, His Word, and His ways. It seems, at least for me, that I go where my gaze goes. How about you? Wherever my gaze goes, that's where I go. If it goes here, that's wherever I go. Wherever it is, that becomes my direction, right? That becomes my direction. Wherever that gaze is becomes my direction. May our direction be set in our gaze. And may our gaze be on God's Word. We have to get into this book. I can't say it enough. We've got to get into this book. And God wants our attention. Say, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to let that shape your heart and your mind. May our gaze be on God's Word as we're reading it to allow it to to tender our hearts and minds to his will and what he wants in our life. The third thing he says here is a command. He says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. How sweet are your words to me? They're sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, right? We've got to get into this book so that the book can get into us is what we've got to do. It's got to be here. That's where God wants it. It does no good to be on the pages here. It has to be in here. It can't, just can't be in here. It's got to be in here. That's what we want. That's what we want this year. Amen? We want that. Now, now, this is just the beginning. I've just scratched the surface. There's so many more things that I wanted to share with you, but we'll get in that the rest of the series, right? But this morning, I want to say more than anything, we have to take God's Word serious because life is serious. And eternity is a big deal, right? Eternity is a big deal. And it, 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 we have to get into this book. And if you haven't, if that hasn't been your practice to get into this book, I want to invite you to a wonderful journey as you get into this book each week and join us as we get into this Word. And as you do that, and, and allow this Word of God to get into you. And when it does, it will change you. It will change you. It will shape our hearts. It will affect our speech. It will affect our ways if we allow the Word of God to get into us. The Word of God promises not come back empty. You know that, don't you? So if you allow the Word of God to get into you, it's going to shape you. It's going to change you. It's going to change the way you speak. It's going to change the way you, your outlook. It's going to change your ways. It does. It promises to do that in our hearts and our minds. And I hope you understand that we're all in this journey together. My desire this morning was not to bring guilt to anyone. My desire this morning is to say we're all in this journey together. And this is important. I wouldn't be spending this amount of time on this. I'm going to do a whole five-week series on this if it wasn't important. We have to be people of this book. I cannot stress it enough. As believers in Jesus Christ, we've got to be people of this book. We're all in this journey together. And, and if you're here today, the first place where that journey starts is to have a relationship with God through Jesus. Amen? And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, 
yet. That's the first place you have to begin, right there. To understand this, there were all sinners. Everyone in this room is a sinner. And because of our sins, we are separated from God the Father, and there's no way that we can approach Him because He's holy, righteous, and good, and perfect in all His ways. And none of us are. Whether you realize that we're all sinners, none of us are. So there's no way we can approach a holy, just God. So God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world, and Jesus went to the cross, and God placed all those things that separate you and I from God, all those sins, and Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He paid the complete payment for you. It's paid completely, in full. And so now you and I can approach a holy, just God, but we have to come to Him the way that He's provided, right? And He's only provided one way. Through who? Through Jesus. Through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Now we can come to God, but we've got to accept the finished work that Jesus did on the cross. And all you have to do is come say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's God, and I know that he died on the cross for me. And I accept the finished work of Jesus on the cross for my sins. I drive that stake in the ground, and I trust Jesus to my Savior. The Bible said, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Put your faith and trust in Jesus, amen? Put your faith and trust in him today. If you have any questions about that, please see me after the service today. I'd be glad to talk to you more about that. But we all need to fix our gaze on God and His Word. Amen? We all need to do that. We all need to fix our gaze. And I thought, as we're going into communion, what better way to fix our gaze or our eyes upon God and His Word is to be reminded what Jesus did for us upon the cross, right? Be reminded of that. The only way we know what Jesus did for us on the cross is through God's Word, right? It's the only way you know. You can't look up at God's creation and say, wow, God has a son, and he sent him to die on the cross for my sins, right? We don't get that from creation. Only that we can get from creation God's general revelation, which is there's got to be a God who created this. There's got to be, right? Amen. There's got to be a God who created this. We look up there and say there's got to be a God, but there's no way that it would tell us that God had a son who came down to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. We get that through God's special revelation, through the Word of God. It's the only way we get it. That's why we get it to be in this book. God has given us a special revelation. This is his revelation to us. He said, I want you to have it. I've given you the general. That's for everyone. This special revelation we have to open up so we can understand God's word. And inside this word, God tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen? He lets you and I know that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we find forgiveness of sins, and through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. And the only way we know that is through this wonderful, amazing, living Word. God-breathed book that God has given to you and I that's so precious, that tells us that special revelation about Jesus and about so many other things that we need for life in order to walk with Him. It's found here. The general revelation won't give you that. Nothing in the world will give you that. It's from here that God gives it to us. That He's talking to us, He's speaking to us, and He's helping us to realize that. And in here He tells us, none of these tell us that. He says, now that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, and you trust in Him as your Savior, He says that you need from time to time to remember me. And, he's, and He made a time for us to do that through communion. That I want you to remember what I did for you. And the Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to read to you verses 23 through 26, what Paul writes. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. We had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Bible tells us, now that you and I have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we need to remember what Jesus did for us. And that's what communion's all about. That's what being invited to the Lord's table is all about. God doesn't want you and I to forget what Jesus so graciously did for us. So as we take the elements this morning, we remember as we take that bread that Jesus gave his body for us. Jesus says, when you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. As we take that cup of juice, remember, it's the new covenant. It's Jesus shedding his blood for you and I so that we can have forgiveness of sins in the new covenant. That every time we take this, we're to remember him. We just don't do this because it sounds like a good practice. The Bible tells us to do this. He says, do this. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this morning as we take communion, I encourage you to spend time remembering Jesus, what he did for you. What he did for you. He died for you. He didn't die for himself. He died for you. So you and I might have forgiveness of sin. Remember, he gave his body for you, and he shed his blood for you. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, we invite you to partake. Because this table is for all those who know Christ is their Savior. We're not going to pass the plates. We're going to ask you to come up and take the cup yourself after I'm done praying. Take both cups, one on top of the other. One has the, the wafer cracker in it. The other one has the juice. So take both cups, okay? But as you're doing that, as you take them, take it back to your seat at the end. We'll take them all together. But spend time remembering what Jesus so graciously did for you, okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come and we praise you. We praise you, God, for what you did for us. That you came to this earth in humility as a baby, as a baby. That just boggles my mind. Our minds can't understand. Why would the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who created all things, come as a little defenseless little baby? But that's what you did in humility. And you grew up, Lord, and then you went to the cross, and all of our sins, my sins, every sin in this room, past, present, and future, was placed upon you. The sins of the whole world. And you died on the cross. And there's only one who could accomplish this. It was you, God's son, God, who died for us. That the God the Father would be satisfied with what he did on that cross. That he paid for every one of our sins. That our debt is paid for. Completely paid for through Jesus. And so, Lord, we come to you, remembering what you so graciously did. By your own free will, you did this because you love us so, so much. That you came to die and take our shame, take our sin, take the wrath of God upon yourself so that we won't have to spend one minute of eternity apart from you because you love us so much. And you want us to be with you forever and ever. And you're preparing a place for us. Lord, we're so thankful. Today, I pray that each and every one of us remember what you did for us, what it took, the beatings you took, the torture you took, what they did to our Lord and Savior, what they did to God upon the cross. I can't imagine what it cost you, but you did it, and we're so thankful. So, Lord, we remember that body, remember that blood that was shed for us. We're so eternally grateful. May we spend time thinking about what you did. May we, may we have hearts that are so thankful. Uh, Lord, of your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, all that you did. And may we, we thank you so much, God, the Father, you accepted that, that offering, that sacrifice of Jesus upon that cross, and you proved that by 
raising him from the dead, that you were satisfied with what Jesus did. We're so thankful for that. We're so thankful. We're so thankful that we now can have a relationship with God through Jesus. And our hope in eternity is that one day we be with him forever and ever and ever. So as we take this communion, remind us of this. We're so thankful. Remind us of, of all that you did for us. Remind us of all that we have because of Jesus. Jesus, it's by your grace we're saved through faith. We're so thankful. So Lord, as we take communion, be with us, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.